my fellow Americans, distinguished guests, loyal listeners, super fans and followers, new listeners, returning listeners who stopped listening for a couple weeks because of what I said about Local Hero, and those of you who can't figure out how to turn off your podcast players. It is my great honor, no, not honor, honor, to introduce to you on this auspicious day, the 56th day after an actual anniversary of something, this newest episode of Full Cast and Crew. We've made a lot of promises here at this podcast about stitches in time, saving nine, about picking up after ourselves, and about surfing a film's full cast and crew section of its IMDb page to mine it for thoughtful, humorous, and considered content. And while we may not have kept all of those promises, or even any of them, I'm looking at a pair of socks on the floor right now. I am reminded of a quote from the protagonist of this week's film, a film which we discussed a little while ago but are only releasing now because half of us are on vacation. In the garden, growth has its seasons. First comes spring and summer, but then we have fall and winter, and then we get spring and summer again. Well, it might not mean anything, and it certainly doesn't make sense with what I said before, but by gum, it should be a good hint as to the movie we'll be discussing today. So put a hand over your heart, one over your eyes, and if you have any hands left, over your ears, as we discuss Hal Ashby's 1979 political satire, which, like most satires from before the Trump era, now seems somewhat tame compared to our current, off-brand, low-rent, fascism-curious nightmare of a broken republic being there. I, I think that less personal choice for humans until proven otherwise is a good thing. Wow. So you're going on record as advocating totalitarianism. I am for now until (laughs) until we can prove that we can handle things like democracy. Right. Capitalism. Some freedom. Higher being is taking it away from us. Liberty. Until you. Until you guys. Until you learn how to behave again. Yeah. You're not getting this democracy back. This is how I discipline my seven-year-old. We have a seven-year-old as president. And if we're going to act like that, then you don't get to have your toys. You don't get to do the things you like to do. Well, I noticed you hit record just just as I started. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I rambling have about some call it content. I call it leverage. Well, look, democracy. It's got its up. Speaking of democracy, this is full cast and crew. This week we are talking about 1979's. I almost don't even know what to describe it as because it's so many things. Satire. How about this, Chris? How about a well-acted, intelligent, human-scale drama? I saw that listed on the MDB. It's a very good description. Very good description. It is hard, though, to describe the good Hal Ashby movies because, and I was trying to think of another example, and maybe you can think of one now, of a film that is as biting a social satire, but is also as warm and human and touching. I think that's why I had difficulty thinking of it as a satire and also wondering what exactly it's satirizing. Well, I mean, it's satirizing the entire American political and commercial corporate life. It seems more than that. And I think of satire as usually being a little bit more focused on here's this one thing like that network. we're satirizing. Network would be a yeah. good example. And there are elements of it, but it becomes changed or yes. leavened by the heart, by the fairy tale tone. Right. I think it's pretty safe to say that we're, but we both like this movie. Yes? I love this movie. Yeah. I've always loved this movie. It's a celebration of simplicity and the cliches. I mean, to say them here, they sound as cliche as they are. Yeah. However, the way that they're portrayed in the movie, everyone's machinations, everyone's armor that they've put on to get through their relationship their job is pierced not through cleverness 
It's pierced through the utter uncorruptible simplicity of chance mm -hmm. and his inability to answer any question other than completely literally. The way that you've just explained it could run the risk in lesser hands of becoming treacly. I think Absolutely. the idea of a holy fool, of yes. somebody who's so simple, it's it's a so very, trite. it's yeah. patronizing. And this movie is not that. And I think part of it is because he is not totally incorruptible because of television. To just back up one second, yes. for those of you who haven't read the book that it's based on or seen the movie. It's the backstory of how Donald Trump became president. <laughs> so this, this Oh, sorry, is I didn't how... mean to spoil that. Yeah. <laughs> if Donald Trump had more Chauncey Gardner-esque qualities, to... the world would be a much better place. Yeah, because this guy, he doesn't get riled. He doesn't get no. angry. He doesn't- He does uh, like to watch- Spit and complain. He, he does like to watch TV. It starts, you have a man- wakes up, he's a gardener, he's going about his day, you sort of don't know. Are you going to explain the whole movie to us in this? I don't Just think we need to do that. Premise. I think and people he, are familiar with one of the greatest films of all time. You have a very high estimation of our audience. I was how <laughs> We're going to go frame by frame and do know this was shot at 24 frames per second. Man wakes up, looks like he might be a normal person, and then you find out he has never left this house. His only contact with the outside world has been television. He's a gardener in this house run by an old man. You never learn the old man's name who has just died. It's in Washington, D.C. in what used to be a prosperous right. area and is now sort of run down. And he walks out and then enters into the world and through his simplicity becomes a very influential member of the political class. Let's cite a few more details to sure. what makes the movie the movie. Hal Ashby, Peter yeah. Sellers, Jersey Kaczynski and Bob Jones, who's the screenwriter. Interesting. And that that's who you would. Oh, absolutely. And the entire cast. Chris and I both watched the Criterion edition. What's what's it called? Criterion Collection. Criterion Collection, yeah. Which, which includes a, a really interesting 45-minute making of, which was really interesting. I really loved the producer guy. I was about to, uh, th that was my favorite part of it. Know, was getting loved, a little, um, he's spilling all the tea. He had all the tea. I loved Caleb Deschanel, mm -hmm. Bob Jones, and the editor. can't remember his name. Let's see. Uh, edited by, oh, Don Zimmerman. Yeah. Anyway, it, it had the feeling, now that we've done a bunch of these, I think you can tell when you're watching making of documentaries or listening to people talk about their experience making the movies, you can kind of tell when they got the lightning in the bottle. And this sounds like one of those sets. Even when you have someone like Hal Ashby, who was on a descent after this point mm -hmm. to an unfortunate drug and alcohol problem that derailed his career for some years. And you had Peter Sellers, who sounded like as he was trying to do this movie, was essentially unemployable in Hollywood because he was considered such a pain in the ass. And the studio did not want to work with him. And everyone told Ashby and Bob Jones, like, you're crazy to go down this road because he was a very dark and tortured person. Person for all of the... And P.S. on death's door. He died about a year he later. He died about a year later. Did you know that the inscription on his tombstone is life is a state of mind? That's on Ben's, That's uh, on Ben's mausoleum. mausoleum. Well. And those are also on Peter Sellers' own gravestone. You know, it's funny. Hal Ashby is somebody whose work I don't know particularly well. I've seen a few things. I think I've probably seen probably his best thing. I've Harold seen and Harold Maud. and Maud. I've seen this. Shampoo. I haven't seen shampoo. I would like to see Last more of detail. Honestly, maybe it's just this <laughs> and uh, Harold and Maud. <laughs> But I've read about him and, yeah. uh, oh, The Landlord. I've the, seen landlord. the Landlord, that was, that's the yeah, one that first I was thinking movie. of, his first movie. He is a very confident filmmaker. He seems to have a point of view. And yet at the same time reading about him, he was very temperamental and mm -hmm. in his own way. And his background is being an editor. And I don't know if you listen, there was also an interview with him at AFI that was on that. Yeah, I didn't get thing. to hear that. As with anything, it would probably be more exciting to actually be there. But some of it was interesting for a guy who was something of a hippie. Part of that involved him getting sort of weirder and weirder and more into, mm -hmm. into both drugs and, and mysticism. It happens, man. <laughs> you know? The lure of it. Despite that, 
he is very articulate about what he's doing and almost conservative in the way that he would talk to students about both the business and about making movies, Mm. about having to be rigorous. You can't rush things. You try different things. That was one of the things besides his um, difficulties because of drugs and alcohol. He was very slow. Because he would constantly, as an editor himself, he would want to edit and re-edit and try things and shift things all the time. And in listening to that interview, you could hear that kind of passion. And yet that passion is belied, I think. And when you watch it, it seems almost effortless. Particularly, I think, with this movie more so than The Landlord because it has sort of a woolly element. It does seem rather like Chance, Mm -hmm. a little bit distanced and simple. Not simplistic, but yes. in, in a way, in a sort of still waters runs deep sort of way. And there's so many currents in this movie that I wonder, what did grab Hal Ashby? What did he want to say? Because it's very different than, than what Jersey Kaczynski might have wanted sure. to say, what Bob Jones might have wanted to say, and what Peter Sellers, mm-hmm. who had been lobbying to play yes. this role and have this movie made for many years prior to it happening. And then you have these Certainly those top three of Sellers, Kaczynski, and Ashby on the cusp of real darkness, <laughs> sort of meeting at some place to find this thing of real beauty and depth, but not an uncomplicated beauty. In I, this I think the thing that they found together was Bob Jones' script. Jersey had written the screenplay himself based on his novel, and at least in the making of documentary, The producer tells a pretty interesting story about these versions of the script that each one was sort of successively less good, kind of going down a Jersey-esque spiral. And he would be adding more. Correct. And adding sort of weirder things and and chance would find it in weird places. I think they mentioned like a a labor riot. and (laughs) Right. Part of the reason I want to stop down on that is because Jersey was a Polish immigrant, probably of my parents' generation, close to. And I just think of like my uncles and people that I know from that generation and the fear of communism that sometimes can breed a certain reactionary element. You know, Eastern Europeans were big supporters of like Reagan. Mm -hmm. uh, And to this day, I've got some Trump supporters in my family Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Reading about him and actually listening to a couple of interviews, it doesn't seem like that is there. But I do wonder if the more he was trying to add to it, it was because, you know, he loved the United States and loved the freedom that it gave him over his life. And so wanting to pack more in to the, mm-hmm. the screenplay. Well, I think to put chance in those scenarios, like you're talking about a labor rally or what have you, you have this blank, really, that you can use as a mirror to reflect whatever you want, right. make whatever societal or cultural statement you want to make. One of the things I think is interesting when we do these, even a movie that you know and love, like I've seen it many, many times, mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I watched the Criterion version and the making of that you realize what you think. You're looking at the credits. It's a Hal Ashby film, a screenplay by Jerzy Kaczynski. Well, that's not actually true. It's actually the opposite of true, which is so ironic in a movie so devoted to truth, a filmmaker devoted to human truth, and a writer in Jersey. Although, if you read about Jersey and you know anything I about, about say, him, I don't know, he's you know, his relationship to the truth, truth is a little <laughs> squirrely and wiggly. It's a very compelling part of the story when the producer is talking about how it came time for him as the producer to submit the credits. And he said, screenplay by Bob Jones based on the book by Jersey Kaczynski. And Jersey Kaczynski said, no, that's my screenplay. 
And the producer said, Jersey, you can't. Yeah. Bob Jones wrote that and he just wouldn't hear of it. And it went to arbitration. And even he was shocked that yeah. Bob Jones lost and Jersey was awarded the sole screenplay credit. It's very moving to hear Bob Jones in the documentary say, this really affected his career. Like Hal Ashby, he was an editor primarily right. trying to transition into writing. He had had some success with- He wrote Coming Home. And- Which he was like, that's not me. I'm not a Vietnam War guy. He said he I'm kept- not a Exactly, that's guy. all he kept. Yeah. So he but, got, um, got every Vietnam War script. And this would have completely changed his career. Such a Jersey Kaczynski-esque irony, but it doesn't really have any bearing on the experience of watching the movie, which that simplicity, which Caleb Deschanel talked quite a bit about in terms of the framing, the sameness of the shots and and have action take place within a frame and the camera is not moving excessively, gives it that quality of watching people interact in opulent surroundings, which are just gorgeously photographed. And Chance kind of, I felt like, I, I, God, I just want to turn the TV off. Like he could do so much more than watch TV, but he's being corrupted and corroded by it, but he's also being taught by it. This is where we learn. We learn from an alternative reality that has nothing to do with the day-to-day. And everybody's interaction in the movie, even people that you like, and this is one of the subtleties I think is great. Even people you like, Melvin Douglas and Shirley MacLaine, their complicated marriage presented realistically. He knows he's an elderly man about to die and she's much younger and still vibrant and encourages her to have this romance with Chance. Jack Warden is the president. None of them can really be honest with each other in the way they find Chance so shockingly honest because they live in the world. Because he doesn't live in the world, he's not full of shit. End profound point. Yeah. Wow. It's deep, isn't it? I'm going to- Should I have wrapped it up a little more? No, no, no. You know what it is? I thought I hit it on the head, but maybe not. Well, I just wanted to muddle it a little bit because, uh, you know- You mean mull it over. You didn't want to muddle it. No, I do want to muddle it. I I like muddled. I like wrinkles. You keep calling- Chance? Chance, incorruptible. And I can't help but think that he's not wholly incorruptible. You do have this strange thing that he often does where he's watching something and he will imitate it as he's watching it. Yes. And this becomes how he interacts with people. Yeah. So he reflects, almost like a television, now that I'm thinking about it, what people want to see. Most of the conversations, even his very name, which turns into Chauncey Gardner, yes. is because someone mishears it. The simple things that he is saying that everybody reads something into. It's not a holy man dispensing wisdom. This is literally all he knows. It's very good that we have the character of Louise, yes. who is the maid in the house where the old man lived, who had brought him up. I love this cutaway. That's a great scene, And then though. there's a cutaway of, of her. Uh, she's black in a, uh, in a room. In her, like, retirement home. Retirement home. Yes. Some plants do well in the sun, and others grow better in the shade. Sounds as if we need a lot of gardening here. We certainly do. (laughs) Yes. It's for sure a white man's world in America. It is possible to be flooded in one part and the other part. I raised that boy since he was the size of a pistol. Of the gardener. And I'll say right now he never learned to read and write. No, sir. Had no brains at all. Areas. The stuff with rice pudding between the ears. It is the responsibility. Short changed by the Lord and dumb as a jackass. Plant a Look at him now. In the shade of a yes, high sir. Wall. All you gotta be is white in America to get whatever you want. 
Gobbledygook. Oh, great. Because here he is yes. within days. He's, he's on be, TV. He's poised to be president. And she knows, as, as she puts it, that, yes. that there's what it, mush. whatever it is, yeah. mush in his mush head. for brains. That's what keeps it from being the treacly version of yeah. this movie. He's not dropping pearls of wisdom. It's that the culture is so deadened that the simplicity of what he's saying strikes people as deep and profound. But it's not him being simple. It's like, this is literally all I know. And this is why you can't imagine anyone playing this role other than Peter Sellers. The layers beneath the literalness and the simplicity, that's why he was a comedic genius. I was also trying to think, is there someone else who's both such a cerebral comedic actor and brilliant physical comedic actor? I tried thinking about a similar thing, and I wonder if like Robin Williams would almost be the closest. But does he have the cerebral part the way, I mean, we're talking about a guy, you know, who played Clouseau, but I mean, cerebral in that there's There's a Cleverness and intelligence, and there's sophistication there. I'm trying to think if I've been, yeah, you know, what I mean, to, moved by Robin Williams I mean, a few you know, times. He did try, you know, he did do dramatic stuff, and I think he tried to bring Fisher that. King. I remember being very moved by Fisher King. Fisher King, I I actually really liked the first. I saw him in Dead Again. He had a small part. Was sort of an odd. Yeah, he's in that. Just a small part. Yeah, where Kenneth Branagh is like investigating something. Yeah, who is he in that? Somebody that it's a clue from. He's some guy who like works in a fish store. Do you think of Robin Williams as a physical comedian? I don't think of him doing physical comedy. Yes, I do. You know, the, I think of like old stand-up or Mork and Mindy. You know, he's a nut, yeah, stumbles and falls. Did you read the Washington Post profile of Chevy Chase? Kind of this late career opportunity to assess himself. Um, and it includes a lot of fond reminiscence of Chevy from back in the day. There's a Saturday Night Live sketch from his era mm-hmm. where it's about childproof caps on drug bottles. I think it's Lorraine Newman recounts how the shot was just Chevy's hands. You never yeah. heard him or saw him because it was a voiceover about these childproof caps on drug bottles. And the joke is you just can't open them regardless right. of whether you have a blowtorch or a pickaxe or whatever. And she said he's just getting laughs with his hands. And that's huh. how great a physical comedian he was. I don't know if I think of Robin Williams in that same way. I think of Robin Williams as antic and all cerebral. I don't know if I think of him as a physical clown yeah, maybe, in that way. But you know, they, like Mrs. Doubtfire. You know, like there's some, but again, yeah, you're right. Suit. That's in a movie that's in a that's, suit. Sure, you, you Guy in right. a suit. You to quote good. John, um, John... Carpenter. Carpenter. Oh. Thanks for helping me out there, Chris. Jesus Christ. I'm staring at you for the lifeline. Really... Drowning man. Chris just stands there and looks. God, fascinating. you don't get to see death that often. You know, when I look across you, like so obviously searching, throw me something. Just I didn't have it. Throw out a name. To remember. John, famous John. Instead, it's just silence. The sound. the sound of silence. Paul Simon, friend of Chevy Chase's. The quality of the selection of the television clips, which for two people in the business we're in, didn't really hit me until I was watching Caleb Deschanel talk about the technical difficulties in 1979 of filming those. Someone had to choose every single one of those. And not only that, but since they chose not to just film a green screen and ask the actor to pretend to be acting against something they wanted to do it in real time so that a VHS or other recording machine was actually feeding this content into real television screens. Yeah. And that meant 24 frame per second video yep. to sync it up with the film camera. So when you think about that layer of work, it's really quite amazing. The thing that struck me, I was just thinking of like, wow, that's that's got to be expensive to clear all that stuff. <laughs> That really, yes. that was my thought. Like, oh, see, I didn't right. think about gonna... that. This is the divide that you yeah, and I well, exist is... on in the business. I go, I, I don't care. I just want that clip. And yeah. you, you have to go and you actually down in the get trenches. It. Get it for me. <laughs>
But yes, I, I thought that was fascinating to hear him talk about that. And it does make such a difference. It's a character. Television yeah. is a character and is so adequately represented with depth and variety. Mm-hmm. And arguably, the weakest television moments are the ones that couldn't be pulled from actual pre-existing content. Like, for example, when they had to make the talk show that he goes on, mm-hmm. like that guy doesn't feel like he would ever be the host of a late night talk show. I don't know. I, I only disagree because I was watching some of the stuff in the Criterion Collection. They yeah. had Peter Sellers on oh, some on Australian show, as well as uh, Dick Cavett Cavett, um, interviewing Jersey Kaczynski. And that guy seemed sort of of that ilk. Yes. Uh, That was a groovy time. That was a groovy time. How was the Cavett-Kaczynski interview? It was really, it was great. Was it? So reading about Jersey Kaczynski, because of all the talk of plagiarism and this and that, I didn't like him from reading on Wikipedia and from the anecdote about him stealing the credit. So I was- Or possibly fabricating the novel that he passed off as his life story. All those things. (laughs) But I'll tell you, in the interview with Dick Cavett, I liked him a lot because I think- Well, he had great charm. He did have charm. Not that those things didn't come up, but he was addressing them from a different point of view. This idea of, I think it's the painted bird, this question of, is it autobiographical? He sort of talked about that a little bit and in a way that I thought was nuanced Hmm. because he's a novelist bringing parts of his life into his novels is sort of what you have sure. to do. And yet yeah. it is, he would say, these are novels. These are not sure. nonfiction. Well, I think the that's probably that, a literary thing that was going through at the moment, perhaps, that wouldn't be quite such a thing now. I guess, you know, that's a good Even point Even though we too, went through it again. people hadn't... With people putting, you know, like James Fry or what have you. But James Fry, one, this has already happened. So these discussions have happened. So you sort True. of- You can't plead ignorance. Of, you can't plead the yeah. complete Which ignorance. Which I don't think he could have done even back then. You know, I, they had liter- nature of the has literature is- been around a long time? I guess that, the was that first, something Americans invented the like first in the book 60s, was the right? The Great Gatsby. Okay, in so that's like the 20s. So before, okay. So that's 15 years ago. So, yeah, ago. I mean, I guess the evolution of writing, yeah, <laughs> we would be right at that point when Jersey was doing this stuff. So he was just coming along with that. That's my phone ringing somewhere oh, else. <laughs> it's, it's not near me. I'm sure it's just something about Kavanaugh withdrawing or Trump resigning. It's my wife. Ah, telling you about Kavanaugh withdrawing or Trump Hold resigning. On. Hi, hon. Hello? Oh, mister. She was pranking you. Full Casting Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind. Like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Let's talk the cast. I realized we should have called this damn podcast the David Clennon story because, <laughs> my God, David Clennon is in, this is his third appearance. This is our first full cast and crew hat trick. <laughs> that David Clennon. Boy, is he fantastic. Is there anything it's, he can't do? My, my appreciation and the mystery deepens at the more I see. I'm thinking yeah. to myself, the amazing thing is it's both a role that anyone could do. It's the, a role that performs a function. It's, it's walking explication. Yeah. Right? That's the only thing this role does. Yeah. All right. Hello. We thought we heard something. I'm Thomas Franklin. Hello, Thomas. I'm Chance the Gardener. The garden? Yes. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> uh, Mr. Chance, this is Ms. Hayes. Mr. Chance, I'm very pleased to meet you. Yes. Yes. We're with Franklin Jennings Roberts. The law firm handling the estate? Yes, Thomas, I understand. Are you waiting for someone? 
An appointment? I thought, what am I going to do? I yes. Louise will bring me my lunch. Who's going to date me now? <laughs> All kidding aside, Mr. Chance, may I ask just what you're doing here? I live here. Yet, it's also almost impossible to think of anyone but David Klein doing this role and just 80s, pre-80s, but like we're in the 80s in terms of being 79. I just, I'm, I'm mystified by how useful David Clennon is. It's one of those things when we talked about David <laughs> Clennon in general, or when we talked about Anthony Schur in uh, Superman yes. 2, it shows you have to be bold. Yeah. A part on the page is one thing, but to really create a whole character around it just made it so much more You realize enjoyable. this is going to end with David Clennon sitting in this chair. Oh, I can't wait. Like, it has to. I just laughed out loud last night, knowing that he's in the movie somewhere yeah. in my mind, but not even. In my mind, these are three totally distinct actors in the three movies that he's appeared in to date. And the time, 79, the thing is in 82. There was a scene between he and Richard Dysart. Richard together. Dysart. And I was thinking of Together like, again. Are they talking about, hey, did you hear about this thing that yeah, uh, John Carpenter is doing? Uh, like, did you get an offer well, for that? Well, the thing was 82? Yeah. Before the thing, right. And before Light Sleeper. But in each case, there's enough of a time difference that's like three different actors because he kind Incredible. of ages into something, but it doesn't feel like an older Hugh Grant in Paddington. Oh, he was great in that. It's like, oh, here's this young leading man yeah. that has moved into a different yeah. life that builds on that. Whereas with David Clennon, it's just like wherever he is, he's the appropriate age for whatever but he's But like, doing. did David Clennon start out as like, I'm going to be a young leading man? I don't think you so. Know, like, I, always a character. I, I want to go back to, he's in the paper chase with Timothy Bottoms and John Houseman. He was, that, that seems like his first movie role. But I'm going to be willing to bet he's not formed as the David Clennon persona that we know from these movies. I guess I put it to you that what we're saying is that there's not much of a persona. Oh, I think there is. To me, it's more like he is such a good actor. He, he doesn't disappear. It's always David Clennon. That's what's to amazing me, to me about it. Yeah, are you think, okay. He's always got a David Clennon thing. But the, to me, but that the roles thing is, are totally different. Is that it's just like, it's alive. It's it's real. But this character is very, very different from the character it plays in Light Sleeper and certainly very different than the character he plays in The Thing. Like, they are so disparate in terms of personality. But and the similarity things. is the humor is something that's always present. Yes. So in this one, he's the oily 80s yuppie lawyer. Right. But he still has comedic charm. It, it adds something. He's not just a villainous kind of lawyer. He has a funny thing to him. Yeah. And the same way that, that Dysart's character... I forget each time seeing the movie that there's this whole subplot of trying to figure out who Chance is and that Dysart as the protective physician of Melvin Douglas's character is snooping and trying to get to the bottom and cooperating with an investigation into Chance. But then at the deathbed scene, when he says Chance's line and means it himself. You've become quite a close friend of Eve's, haven't you, Chance? Yes. Yes. I... I love Eve very much, Robert. And you really are a gardener, aren't you? I, I am a gardener. Well, I'll go and tell Eve about Ben. I understand. I understand. Are we meant to understand he finally understood? You are just a gardener. You're not here to scam and take the estate of the world's most wealthy man. We don't go back to him and see 
whether he bought it. It just, I, I was a little confused this time. I, I hear what you're saying. And with a lesser filmmaker, it would feel unresolved. Yeah. But no, as you put it, he understands you're not here to scam anybody. You're also not a Zen yeah. master that yeah. is still like, I mean. It, what do you mean, Chris? Don't look at your computer for answers. Find them within. I'm just looking Don't for Don't tap his silently. Doctor... See, he's scrolling. Alan B. Dysart's character. Yeah. yeah. That was true. We're trying to remember You do this when you... By the way, I realized something about myself doing this. I don't think of characters by their name. I no. think of them by the actor's name. Like, I, it's occurred to me, you're better at remembering the names of the characters than I am. Like, I couldn't tell you right now without looking. I couldn't tell you what the name of Shirley MacLaine's character is. Eve. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's weird. I noticed this about myself. Because they're stars. And, you know, oftentimes they are booked to be stars. And I guess it depends on the kind of movie that you're watching and stuff. Uh, Melvin Douglas, so good. You know, they considered Burt Lancaster, who we saw in Local, Local Hero, oh, did to they? be Ben and, Rand, which would have been good. I, that could have worked. I think even on his own deathbed, Burt Lancaster probably looked very healthy. Yeah, Melvin Douglas <laughs> certainly <laughs> has. All of these actors yeah. in the end. Is this Hal Ashby's direction? Is this Hal Ashby's trust? Whatever it is that he did, there is nothing fussy about it. Even Jack Warden, and again, not, not even Jack Warden, like even Jack Warden didn't suck. I mean, like, yeah. uh, the scene where he is first listening to Chance. This is why Jack Warden is a genius. Hello, Mr. President. Huh. Hello. Uh, Mr. President, I want you to meet my very dear friend, Mr. Chauncey Gardner. Mm. On television, Mr. President, you look much smaller I must warn you that Chauncey's not a man to bandy words. <laughs> oh? Really? Well, Mr. Gardner, I'm a man who appreciates discussing a frank discussion. <laughs> Would you be seated? Yes, I will. Oh. Now, Ben, I was wondering if you had a chance to yes. go... Did you happen to have a chance to yes. go... Ben, did you read my speech? The physical thing of him being like, are you kidding? And he it looks to so Ben good. and, he's and so his good hand is moving. Good for Hal Ashby to have the wide shot to be able to see all of that mm -hmm. and to allow it to happen slowly without focusing in on the hand mm -hmm. or, or cutting. It's fascinating. And it actually leaves so much more mystery because you're sure. just watching the action, just watching the actor yeah. allowed to live in a moment. It makes it sort of ambiguous, which yes. brings me back to Richard Dysart's thing. Yeah. What he understands is for a lesser filmmaker, it either would have been like, oh, you're not scamming. You can stay. Or, oh, you've got mush for brains. Yes. But I think his his understanding of chance yes a chance of circumstance yeah just sort of happened this way and what's this knowledge going to help anybody the great thing about a guy like jack warden who really has one major scene which is the scene with ben and chance in the library yeah. you put jack warden in that scene and the most definitive jack warden thing that he does which is so funny to me he has those eye rolls the acknowledgement that chance is holding his hands in the way that chance saw ben hold his friend the president's hands in a much more intimate way than the president would expect this guy chance that he's just meant to do yeah and then jack warden tries to tell a joke after Chance has delivered his disquisition on spring and summer and fall and winter and the garden will grow. Yeah. And Jack Warden says, that's, you know, that, that, that kind of thinking, that's precisely what we lack on Capitol Hill. And then he waits 
because he's the president, he's used to laughter coming yeah. <laughs> in, whether the joke is funny or not. In this case, the joke is not funny. No one laughs. And he, he just does this look. I, we, I've, I've mentioned these movies before. I really encourage you and everyone to see the movie he made right after this movie, which is Used Cars, which is a Bob Zemeckis movie uh-huh. with Kurt Russell, which is a great little gem movie of the late 70s. And then, of course, The Verdict. He's amazing in The Verdict, and he's amazing ah, in All the President's Men. I love the subtlety of Jack Warden, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the movement, the stuff with his eyes and his physical presence. And he doesn't do it with a line. If I was an actor, I'd probably tend to try to be verbal about everything. Jack Warden is so good at knowing that it's more effective to say less. Yeah. Chris is thinking, yeah, you could use that note. I was actually more thinking that rather like, like Jack Warden. Oh, I thought you were going to say I was. <laughs> you are very. Warden-esque. You know. Or I'm more well, like Peter be, Sellers, you're saying? Is that- it's not all about you. I'm saying that Jack Warden and Peter Sellers, and Peter Sellers yes. share that the yeah. physicality. It'll take somebody with more patience than I to judge or see, you know, how acting styles change. Hmm. And I would think we're probably in a particularly verbal time now. Oh, yeah. Did you notice the Whereas, scene where they're walking down the hall and Chance is mimicking Ben's really short footsteps? Chance and Ben are walking down the ornate hallway, yeah. and Ben has his arm around Chance's shoulders. And Chance's hands are, he's yeah. clasping his hands clasping behind, behind his back. His back. Yeah. And Chance is taking these extremely small steps in order to stay at pace with Melvin Douglas, which is kind of akin to the other really brilliant, subtle physical things that he does. I'm thinking of in the initial scene with David Clennon and the other lawyer when they walk into the garage and he adopts a car commercial-esque stance on the running board and the window of the old car. That's a nice car. Do you drive it, Mr. Chance? I've never been in an automobile. You've never been in a car? No. I've never been allowed outside of the house. Such a... It's a subtle thing. Subtle thing. And it makes for such great irony because he's so comfortable from having seen it on TV. I was wondering as an actor, I think of him as such a quiet physical presence in every scene in this movie. And at the time, the controversial use of the outtakes at the end, you see the great effort it takes to be still on film. But I was struck that he's so still in this movie, in every scene. I can imagine it would be almost exhausting. I'm sure. To be and I that think somebody still. says it in one of the featurettes. He talks about how he came up with the voice and the diction yeah. first. And because Peter Sellers' background, he started in radio, that he builds out from the vocal thing, which is which is interesting. Yeah. I don't know that I've heard of anybody else. And he else would record his lines started and that way. experiment with the cadence in order to get this very unique chance cadence. There's effort that goes into that. And I'm talking about both with that and with the way he would walk and the placidity and the, my favorite quote from Dolly Parton. Costs a lot of money to look this cheap. Mm. So too with this, to get to that Zen simplicity, not that that's thematically because I think it's more complex, but you know, to get to that stillness, that control, that honesty where some of, where the humor can live. Yeah. Because, you know, it's not like he's, he's not so lost in the character that he doesn't know what he's doing. No, he knows exactly what he's yes. doing, but it does not feel affected. It does not feel like he's going for a laugh in the way that a lesser comedian or lesser sure. actor would. That just takes a lot of effort to have everything humming and working so perfectly. Yeah. And it takes that amount of effort for the effort to be invisible. It becomes invisible. Yeah. yeah. In the outtake scene, which was great to be reminded how much that bothered him initially. Did you read that story? About- right, because you had said that it's controversial it, and I hadn't yeah. read that. When I remember seeing this movie the first time as a kid, I remember loving that. And in our shows that we work on here, I'm always a big proponent of outtakes because yeah. I just, I love them. It never occurred to me until I read that this was 
something he did not like, that it is a little jarring and it does break the spell of the movie to see him acting as we do in that moment. But it never bothered me as a kid. And I loved seeing a little bit behind the scenes of something that we had never seen at that point. Right. But he didn't like it. He thought it broke the spell of the movie. And he continued to believe until he died that it cost him the Academy Award. No, really? (laughs) Because his dead mother probably told him. Chris is alluding to the fact that when the producer was talking about- Doing press. Doing press and and, um, Peter said, it's in the bag. It's in the bag. Don't worry. And he said, why? Well, my mother told me. He's like, "Uh, but your mother's dead. And he's like, we talk all the time. Yeah. So they actually did in some additional releases of the movie, they cut that out and the movie kind of ended. They used some static, some TV static. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the Criterion that we were watching, it has the original outtake ending where he's trying to do the line, which is ironically also a scene that is not in the movie that you just watched, which I think is kind of an interesting choice for an outtake. And it's him breaking up the whole cast and crew. But what's amazing about that is this physicality that we're talking about as he breaks up and he laughs. And then as they get ready to do the take, you can physically see it. He retreats within himself in some way that's almost spooky. A stillness comes over him and he delivers the lines. And now you're realizing that the cadence of the language is so off. He's speaking in a stilted cadence that he figured out and he has to do that and he has to be incredibly still and you can see it and it's partly the effort of that is what's cracking everybody up you know he's a fascinating guy and he I'm, is you know there's been a lot of he's dark ink spilled and a lot Much of uh, movie made is there one a of rap- documentary i was thinking there was certainly that life and death of peter Sellers fictional movie fictional movie who based on jeffrey rush who is an amazing I love jeffrey rush himself so i think it would be interesting to see that sort of copy of a copy i don't know if it's good i haven't seen it the rap about peter sellers was i think that he would say he's like you know that he never had uh he doesn't really have much of an identity on his own i guess except for being a jerk yeah but (laughs) even better uh let me find the one of the other weird interesting character things about peter sellers was he was a complete sycophant for the royal family and high society yeah kind of a snob did you know his name is actually henry no i did not know that you know why they called him peter no his parents even though they named him henry they called him peter after his elder brother who was stillborn jesus so he was given the name called by like the ghost of this brother and i thought like that's probably why he never developed an identity of his own because he was always hitched Mm. to that and he He was was extremely close to his mother extremely close to his mother unhappy man loved his drink loved the ladies though the ladies didn't always love him if when you're getting smacked around it's probably hard to love quote his former wife Britt eklund in reference to the 2004 movie the film leaves you with the impression that peter sellers was essentially a likable man when in reality he was a monster (laughs) well not an amicable end yes and actually i did was reading a horrible anecdote another good thing that came out of that making of documentary yeah when they were talking about casting and oh, he comes in and he's like four chins four chins and he's like don't worry don't worry about that i'm gonna get rid I'm of that get rid of it. i thought he was gonna say so he went to this gym and he's oh, sweating i, I thought no, he, he went i thought he was gonna say he went to the bathroom and removed a complicated oh. <laughs> latex <laughs> neck put on to try no he was just really fat and out of shape and so he had this removed then apparently when he I hated that and i don't like hearing that anecdote because then I, they cut to some shots of him and I'm looking at that like perfect jawline now and I'm going, oh, geez. One of his daughters, mm. uh, when she saw being there, he asked like, how did you like it? And she was, I think, 15 maybe. Yeah. Maybe I think even- She said, you're in that? No, she said something like, I liked it. Yeah, it was really good. Except you looked like a fat little old man. 
Uh, and he yelled at her, threw her out, never spoke to her again, disowned her, disowned her <laughs> sister as well. Yeah, it's in, I mean, it's in Wikipedia, so there might be really? some subtlety that I'm missing, but wow. yeah. In March 1980, Sellers asked his 15-year-old daughter, Victoria, what she thought about being there. She reported later that, quote, I said, yes, I thought it was great. But then I said, you looked like a little fat old man. He went mad. He <laughs> threw his drink over me and told me to get the next plane home. His other daughter, Sarah, told Sellers her thoughts about the incident, and he sent her a telegram that read, After what happened this morning with Victoria, I shall be happy if I never hear from you again. Wow. I won't tell you what I think of you. It must be obvious. Goodbye, your father. Jeez. He also wrote uh, all three kids out of his will. Uh, Didn't he, wasn't he married like five times? Yeah. Bizarrely, Hal Ashby was married five yeah. times in a relatively short life. Yeah. I'm kind of fascinated by that. I don't, my mom was married twice, which, believe me was one time too many, okay? I can't even imagine being in a family where one or more of the parents was married five times. Your concept of what marriage is is much different than what I guess mine would be. Yes. Like, it also makes you wonder like, so why? You can live here, we'll hang out. I, I promise yeah. I'm not gonna be shipping see, anybody else. Well, I think they want to have the multiple marriages. You least, don't think it's just optimism? No, I think like, the guys- no, I think this one's gonna No, stick. no, no, I think the guy's actually going the other way. I think he's actually saying to himself, oh, sweet, this is the third one. This is going to last about 18 months, and then I'm going to be on a four or maybe five. I think if you're going to get married five times, you're into some kind of cycle that only you're maybe aware of. But I'm also fascinated by, like, if you're wife number three or four or five, you really got to have an inherent belief in the goodness of man. Well, you probably figure, like, oh, he's got to be, he's exhausted he's done. at this point. He's, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure it's also very different about time, right? Like, where yeah. you are, Hal Ashby brought up Mormon brought up in a relatively right. conservative home. He Child had, of the 60s and all the governors were off. But well, they weren't all off. Like maybe can't help. You're brought up with a certain understanding. A man gets married to mm, a woman. Yeah. And like, you have to have a wife. So now that like, we're together, we might. Well, I guess we're going to get married. Exactly. That I wonder if, true. if that multiple things had, had more to do with that because both he and uh, Peter Sellers were sort of so unhappy and grasping for things. And yeah. I always feel for somebody who, you could tell it's like, ah, I've, I've got all these things. I'm trying to reconcile them. And instead of trying to screw them together or sort of make them fit like puzzle yeah. pieces, they're just banging them yes. against each other, hoping for them to stick. And that's the impression that I get of Peter Zellers. I'd also like to give a shout out to Benson Governor Gatling. I loved Benson. Why did we like Benson? I ran for seven seasons. I was actually- I, I was, watched it all the time. I mean, Robert Guillaume was great. Benson is not so dissimilar from being there. In Benson, you have Governor Gatling, who's a, not smart. And the smart one is actually Benson, who's behind the scenes. And right. similarly, in being there, the president, the richest man in the world, the people on talk shows, the 1%, they're the ones who are kind of clueless and deluded. And it's really this outsider who knows what's going on in life. Who knows what's going on in life? Chance. He doesn't know Dick. <laughs> well, he doesn't know anything. He almost did at that party. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great scene. By the way... So there's a very funny scene where, where an obviously homosexual party guest attempts to pick up Chance and uses the very subtle pickup line. Have you ever had sex with a man? No, I don't think so. We could go upstairs right now. Is there a TV upstairs? <laughs> I like to watch. You like to, uh, watch? Yes. You wait right here. I'll go get Warren. It's an in-joke reference to 
Shirley MacLaine's brother, Warren Beatty, who I guess there were rumors about his closeness with Hal Ashby. When the gay party goer who thinks Chance has suggested his interest in watching gay sex says, you wait here, I'll go get Warren. This may be a dig at Warren Beatty. Beatty's heterosexual activity was legendary and the professional and personal relationship between him and Hal Ashby was at times virulent, with Ashby refusing to see Beatty during the waning months of his life. It is, you can't have Shirley MacLaine in a movie and say, I'll go get Warren. I, I and not have it be that. a little dig at Warren Beatty. Have you ever read Easy Riders Raging Bulls? Oh, of course. In fact, little humble brag here. Once you identified as that, you actually get It's just a the straight humble. up brag. Straight up. <laughs> BBS, the studio that's yeah. discussed in that book, stood for Bert, Bob, and Steve. So it's Bob Rafelson, the film director. Steve Blauner was Bobby Darren's manager and another principal in BBS. And the other B was Bert Schneider, a film executive from this era. I ended up spending some time in interviewing Steve Blauner, who's a total character and has incredible, unprintable stories Uh of this era. He passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. But anyway, yes, I loved that book. It gave me such an appreciation for all of those directors. And in some ways, I think they're not as lauded today, I think partially because they were, to a person, jerks. And uh, (laughs) Well, doesn't that go with the territory of being a director? Well, I think, you know, I think that's why they're not lauded anymore, because we're like, we should probably try to change that. No more of this William Friedkin. Well, Friedkin's pretty damn lauded. Scorsese's pretty damn lauded. Coppola's pretty damn lauded. I mean, these guys are considered huge artistic titans. You might be confusing employed with lauded. It's not so much that because I think they could probably all sort of do whatever they want. But the attitude around film has changed. And I think the behavior, the lifestyle that went into all of that is looked at differently. And and some of the behavior that's kind of implied, if not stated Mm -hmm. in that book. That's that's, that's That's more what I meant. Certainly somebody like William Friedkin is not considered as highly as he used to be. No. And he'd be the first to tell, I mean, he'd be the first to tell you that he should have always been sure. more highly yes. lauded than he should have. But, you know, his movies of late yeah. have been uh, smaller, let's say. Sure. But you're right. You, they're, they're still respected, but I think there's something about the prevailing personality, which looks unpopular, and yet reading about it, it is so exciting. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in these movies. And in somebody yeah. like Hal Ashby, you can see that it's not just self-indulgence. There is a passion to say something. Yes. Again, that does not forgive every yeah. sin, but it is something that I think, you know, is not as prevalent today. Again, sure. I, I, I'm not somebody to complain about the modern era because there are plenty of wonderful films yeah. coming out and, you know, it's a different world and stuff like that. And yet there is something about, I guess, Hollywood being able to make something like this with the kind of depth and subtlety and the desire to say something. But that is something that has fallen out of vogue somewhat as I think Hollywood has moved more towards corporate entertainment. Well, I think, you know, Andrew Bronsberg, who's the producer who's interviewed extensively in the making of documentary, really speaks to what you're talking about when he talks about certain eras. You have these directors that emerge that are perfectly matched with the era they're making films in. And he uses Ashby as an example. Growing up in a Mormon household in a different time, difficult circumstances, think his father committed suicide, Mm -hmm. gets to Los Angeles and is this child of the 60s and meets Jack Nicholson and falls in with this crowd of people. And then the movies that they're making are about the zeitgeist. And I think that description that we read at the beginning, the well-acted, intelligent, human-scale drama, emphasis on human-scaled. That's what I appreciate most about this movie and these movies. Is more always better? Maybe, but maybe it's harder to find the people that have something to say. As a fan, if I do find those people that I like, whether it's a novelist or an actor or a filmmaker or a musician... 
I feel more responsibility now to actively follow them because it's harder to get and keep them. As you know, Chris, one of the more important pop cultural aspects of my life is The Grateful Dead. Yes. In the contemporary iteration of The Grateful Dead that I spend the most amount of my time listening to, following, reading about is called Dead and Company. Uh Dead and Company is fronted by John Mayer. You've heard of him. He dated Taylor Swift? Yeah. Among other actual artistic achievements and accomplishments, <laughs> yes. But he's also one of the greatest living guitar players. Is he really? Oh, absolutely. Anyway, the bass player in Dead and Company is a guy named Oteil Burbridge. Okay. Oteil Burbridge used to be a bass player in the Allman Brothers Band. You've heard of that. Yes. Oteil Burbridge is the young child named Lolo who has the message for Raphael. Who sent you here, boy? Did that chicken shit asshole Raphael send you, boy? No. Mr. Thomas Franklin told me I must leave the old man's house. He's dead, you know. Dead, my ass. You tell that asshole if he got something to tell me to get his ass down here so. You got that, boy? Check it out. What? He's dead. Come on, (laughs) man. (laughs) Jimmy Jane, right? You got the wrong thing, man. I'm going to bring it to if I see Raphael, I will give him your message. So that's a funny little aside to everything coming full circle in my life. As a child seeing this movie, falling into the Grateful Dead, maybe in a few lost years, come back out, emerge. <laughs> if I ever met O'Teal, I would, of course, be very interested to talk about the music of Dead and Company and the degree but to which people are listening to each other. being there. But we would get to being there. And I think he starts off with that because I'm sure he probably gets more stuff about the Grateful no, Dead. No, no, he gets a lot about this. Oh, you think so? He does get asked about it a lot. Memes get shared on the Grateful Dead fan pages see, and yeah. whatnot of him in the movie. I love the scene you were talking about where he leaves the house. Scored to the Deodato jazz version of oh, the Spach, uh, the Zarathustra. Zarathustra from 2001. Another strange thing about this movie. It looks very real in yeah. that sort of setting, the way that it's filmed, and, and yet it is sort of a fairy tale. Yeah. It's such a thin line that it's drawing. And the fact that it's, like you said, a, a director reflects their times, and I think yeah. this is it's very evident here. That is obviously an allusion to 2001 yes. and making a comparison to it, which to me seems like a risky move that could almost seem dated. And the fact that it still works, mm-hmm. it helps that 2001 is its own sure. classic thing that everybody's going to associate it with. But that is something that I liked about it, that it went to be so contemporary. It's the fact that they're using the Deodato jazz version that gives it the exact quality you're talking about because it references the 2001 Dawn of Man sequence. And it's the Dawn of Man as far as Chance is concerned, emerging from the house for the first time. In the same way that with the television, all the television that he is watching wasn't like stock things that would be timeless. Yes. These were commercials. There was the comedian Ray J. You could call me Ray. You could call me Jay. Oh, yes, yes. Did like a beer commercial. That natural. You could call me Ray. You could call me Jay. 
Basketball Jones. Basketball you Jones. have a little bit of an in-joke where you actually see something that Hal Ashby Hal himself Ashby edited. edited a piece from the Thomas Crown Affair. That Thomas is Crown Affair, yeah. Because yeah. this movie seems so classic, I was particularly interested in seeing the very contemporary illusions that it was making. Yeah. And I think it made it much better. Mm-hmm. A lot of writers would say that the way to be iconic, not that you should be shooting for that, but... Mm. The more specific you are, yeah. the more it can actually sort of apply outward. Sure. So if you try to sort of leave things amorphous, you're not allowing more accessibility. Mm. You're actually pushing people out. Kubrick was the director who said of Clark when they were doing 2001, uh-huh. you need to write a novel because he said where most people go wrong is they sit down to try to write a screenplay. Yes. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to adapt a novel because a novel has the denser, deeper thoughts because it has hundreds of pages to get into all sorts of territories that in a screenplay you just can't. And in trying to somehow take pieces out of the more complicated novel and figure out how to film them, you actually leave room for that ambiguity, but it has thought behind it. You're just not seeing it spelled out in front of you. On oh, that's it. Yeah, because yeah. to me, I can see the link there. But I think he was also talking about developing a story as developing well. Developing a story, yeah. Because I thought that was a very sophisticated thing that, that, he, yeah. that he would do that and because... Um, because he's a sophisticated guy. Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> I mean, I think Shirley MacLaine was the uh, Meryl Streep of her time. Really? She was pretty damn good for a hell of a long time and a lot of great movies. She's excellent in this, in The Apartment, everything that I've seen her in. I always Terms think- of Endearment? Don't tell me yeah. you haven't seen Terms of Endearment. You said terms you haven't of seen Terms of Endearment? Terms of Endearment. I don't know. It feels sticky. Okay, we're doing, terms, we're doing terms of Endearment. Let's do it. I, love, I can't believe you haven't seen that. And this is all why I was a little bit surprised or hesitant. So, you know, you say like, she was so great. She's like Meryl Streep. I, I have to admit, I'm a little bit put off by that because growing up, the thing that I always associated Shirley MacLaine with was her out there spiritual views, reincarnation and that sort of thing, to have very detailed accounts of yeah. her many past lives. Well, and that is, I think, what is- What did you say, Chris? Just sounds a little wacky. We don't well, know what okay. to tell you. Well, what does that have to do I with her performance in the movies? Before seeing her in anything, this was the first impression that I had of her. I think she won an Academy Award, didn't she? I think she did. She must have won several. Yeah, Best Actress for Terms of Endearment. Oh, that's actually her first one. 77, she had her first nominated. Best Actress nomination for The Turning Point. 79. Ooh, we should do a Fosse movie. I love all that jazz. I, have to, I think that's all that his jazz. only movie that I've seen. All that jazz is great. Showtime. Scheider. Talk Scheider. about a guy who doesn't get enough love. Roy freaking Scheider, man. So um, we were talking about freaking before. Have you ever seen Sorcerer? No, I don't think I have. You were commenting about this before. But the story behind the making of Sorcerer, it's like, it's one of those things it was difficult to make for for many, many reasons. Nobody wanted to make it. And he was having trouble with casting. So Roy Scheider was like fifth, Sixth choice, uh-huh. like once, like not the, the like, guy I would expect to see in a fantasy picture. Sorcerer is not a fantasy. Oh, picture, I thought it was which a fantasy picture. Of, no, it's the brawniest, manliest oh. picture and most cynical picture. I've oh, ever it's seen. like Sorcerer. That's your street name. It's the name of a truck because they have to move dynamite. From, oh, right, yes, at right. an oil thing. Right. <laughs> so Roy Scheider is like sixth choice. Sure. But they go Burt Reynolds or this. Yeah, yeah. And so too, so Freakin wasn't hot at this time. He was sort of hot because it, you know this is after The Exorcist, but just some sort of stench. People knew mm, that there was going to be a problem. Too difficult. Maybe, too over budget. But whatever it was, it ends up with sort of no names. All of this is to say, in all that jazz, he was not the first choice. Oh, he wasn't. I didn't know that. No, who was, was the first choice? I think he was originally Dreyfus, and I think Dreyfus, Dreyfus? even they started. What? And then Dreyfus left. Wait a minute, Richard Dreyfus? No. That is ridiculous. Sh- <laughs> Richard Dreyfus. Is that true? Well, let's see. 
All that jazz trivia. Okay, few. Because oh I, I would hate to have to walk that back or that edit this whole thing. I was wrong. <laughs> Dreyfus. Well, this is like the Richard Dreyfus was originally cast in the role of Joe wow. Gideon, but left the production during the rehearsal stage, citing a lack of confidence in the production. He later admitted that he made a mistake in passing up the chance to work with Bob Fosse. On Scheider's IMDb description, the first thing is angular face. That's how they describe him. And then the second thing is frequently tanned. Full casting crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. I read a detail about being there that they made Shirley MacLaine film the masturbation scene 17 times, although they don't allude to that in the making of documentary. Uh-huh. Caleb Deschanel was talking a lot about the lighting and how difficult yeah. it was to light in the Biltmore Mansion where they were shooting all the scenes. The light was really coming from the open bathroom door and the television, and he couldn't remember whose idea it was for her to play the scene on the floor because Chance is watching television. Right. And- really more focused on that than the woman that's trying to get his attention on the floor. They talk a lot about the brilliant production designer that worked on this and many other movies. And he had those bearskin rugs. Bearskin rug, yeah. And he's saying as she's like writhing around, the TV light is flickering and illuminating the mouth of the bear and you can see the teeth and, and just how genius it was. His analysis of that scene was pretty good. How, as he put it, if you played it straight yeah. or tried to play it sexy, uh, it would have been It would have been unjarring, awkward. yeah. And I think he's right, because I do remember watching and thinking, I thought it was so funny and so sweet. That's the difficulty of that scene, I imagine. She has to be sexy and funny. So where do you pitch that? The production design, Michael Haller, Harold and Maude, Bound for Glory, Coming Home, The Last Detail, uh-huh. worked on all these movies with Hal Ashby. Anyway, he, he's a person that they spoke of very highly as contributing so much to the overall look of the film. Right. It's just one of those elements that's sort of strange when you think about how much of the movie takes place at the Biltmore Mansion and what a specific location that is. Deschanel talks a lot about how they were looking for other places that had a similar feel. Some of the problems they were having in the other ones was that they just felt too abandoned. You know, since people didn't live in that style anymore, they would find a great location, but it would feel like a museum. Feel like a museum. The way way that you put it. But the concept of the Biltmore was that if a drapery became too aged, they would meticulously recreate it out of period fabric. And so it, it felt lived in and of the moment, which it really does in the movie. You wouldn't even be able to create a set like that. I love this scene where he's out front and the livery guy says um would you like a car sir yes i would like a car yes sir thank you send up number seven please chauncey there you are if you looked at his lines on the page of course they would look like nothing but the way he delivers yes i would like a car the childlike enthusiasm that infuses this whole character i think the screenwriter said he wasn't thinking of peter sellers when he wrote the screenplay because that happened before sellers was even involved Mm -hmm. which is kind of a funny thing to contemplate well i think hal ashby this was in the interview did talk about this is not to take anything away from from bob jones but he was like you know I, I I had a hand in it too. Oh, sure. Bob Jones might not have written it with as much subtlety as what we saw right. up there is right. the impression that I got. What Hal Ashby did was cutting things down and boiling it down. Yeah. And anytime you talk about a screenplay mm-hmm. in filming, mm-hmm. once you have the actors, that's going to affect and change the right. lines And Bob as Jones well. also wrote 
a completely, I mean, the other iconic moment of the movie is the final shot. Two things before we get to the final shot. We can leave the final okay, shot for the for final. final. Wow, very um, literal, but okay, Chris. But <laughs> I'm trying to create trying an to go outside arc. the box a little trying bit. Trying to here, tell buddy. a story okay. with this episode. What are your thoughts about Ben Rand as the richest man in the world and his business philosophy? <laughs> I knew, I knew, no, was, I knew. <laughs> When I heard Jack Warden read the first line of the eulogy. I know that Ben said, keep it small and quiet. And I don't want to go against Ben's wishes. But I thought it would be good while our close friends are carrying Ben to his last resting place to read from his quotes. I have no use for those on welfare, no patience whatsoever. But if I am to be honest with myself, I must admit that they have no use for me either. That I was going to hear what you're about to say right now. You are so true to form and so predictable. You don't know where I'm going. Yes, I do. You're saying, how do you feel about a movie presenting this character as someone we should feel warmth towards? More the the fact that he was an uber capitalist. And, you know, the things that he does talk about in the dinner scene, he's got a very sort of pro-business agenda. This is not a movie with much plot, but what little plot there is moving the president, what the president wants to talk about, has to do with the economic doldrums reflecting the era, some kind of Carter-esque thing. Although he's more of a Ford than a Carter. It's more of a Ford than a Carter. But certainly the Carter era is, uh, you know, economic doldrums and stuff like that. So I thought it was interesting that Hal Ashby, somebody who is such a hippie, because I wonder what the movie actually thinks of- Of the character? Not of the character, because I think Ben is certainly played as a kind man, but the country is not- in a great state. Yes. We know that the president is having difficulties with his economic policies. With his economic or, yeah. policies. Right. And so the question of what to do and how to interpret mm-hmm. Chance's platitudes yeah. is part of it. And I thought it was interesting that especially somebody who is such a hippie, Peter Sellers too, such a sort of spiritual counterculture, counterculture guy, that there is a sympathetic ear given mm-hmm. to the businessman to sure. the, and the philosophy of economic growth. I'm not saying that satirically. And I don't oh, think that the movie is satirically. It is an interesting choice. I think for me, that's part of the charm of the movie is that even that is part of the satire. The office of the presidency is presented as filled with nincompoops and incompetence. And even though we're supposed to like the president and we do like the president, he's presented as not particularly special. And in a very broad stroke, he can't get it up. In a similar fashion, we're presented with Ben, who's the richest man in America and espouses some philosophies of business and of life some of which are jarring these kinds of things in the in the eulogy that are positioned as controversial slash funny. I think the movie is unsparing in its criticism both of Ben and of the president and of television and of wealth. It shows that all of these positions are occupied by fallible human beings like anyone else. They're not any different than chance. They just think they are. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of the story last summer about the Russian woman who ended up scamming all the glitterati in New York City. You remember that story in New York Magazine? Uh, It's a a woman who was like floating from hotel to hotel and got people to fund projects of hers and... You know, she was basically scamming hundreds of thousands of dollars, living in hotels, never paying her bills, being flown around the world, showing up on Instagram feeds. And in a similar way, it's kind of like being there. She mm-hmm. just managed to slip into this this glittering stream that exists. And once she's in the stream, no one bothers to question whether she's actually qualified to be there. Mm-hmm. And in a similar way, Chance managed to slip into this stream in the funniest of ways, and no one really questions 
whether he belongs there. They, they come, they question him in the sense of who is he? But it's the fact that they can't find anything out about him makes him more alluring to them. Though, of course, the, the one person who does figure it out decides not to do anything. Though there is a difference between somebody who is a scam artist and somebody who is... I mean, I'm sorry, the similarity is not in her and Chance. The similarity is in the worlds they infiltrate. Right. The world that Chance enters, which is our world, mm-hmm. is presented as a shallow parody of human connectedness. Television is separating us and stupefying us. It's Chance's entry into that stream that activates everyone. That's what Shirley MacLaine's character says. You know, when I'm with you, I feel alive. You've you've awoken me. But I also think that they're not so much nincompoops as fallible. The best part of Ben is appealed to. Like he is responding to somebody who is kind and he's responding to kindness in return. Yes. So too with Eve. So too, to a certain extent, the the president. Absolutely. This leads to the shift in his power at the end. Now that I'm hearing you say it, the fact that Chauncey is raised on TV, it's not just that he reflects what people want to see because of, of a simple mindedness. Yep. He is brought up on TV. That's why people feel so comfortable with him. He yes. just becomes another screen. But that's because they're not seeing him. They're comfortable with him because he's parroting things he has seen on television so that he can feel as if he belongs in a moment, even though we as the viewer know he has no idea what he's saying. Though he's not always doing that. When he not talks always. about the gardening, which and that it does become no, the No, but there the are other times when he's simply saying something that he heard on television and it just sort of happens to strike the audience, the audience in a grander sense when he's on the television show, he's talking about gardening mostly then as well. The soul of the movie is about life and the degree to which modern life has disconnected us. And Chance, and certainly the last scene, which didn't come from any great thought out rational connection to what we're talking about. If you believe the story, it came about when Hal Ashby was really stoned and someone mentioned to him something about walking on water and he was like, oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And he decided to end the movie with Chance walking on water. Whereas Bob Jones wrote a scene, which you can see on the Criterion, where it ends in a more conventional way. Chance has wandered away from the funeral and he starts tending to some green shoots that are growing in the field and he positions his umbrella over one to protect it. And Shirley MacLaine comes and finds him. And is it him or her that says, I've been looking for you everywhere? She says it. And then he says, like, I've been looking for you too, Eve. Bob Jones in his interview is still like, I still think that's the better. Of course, he's the writer. He's going to say that. I don't agree. What do you think? I don't know. I actually don't much care for either ending. Really? I think the image, and I'll tell you. I'm shocked. The image of him walking on the water as an image is awesome. There's something that gets lost by him testing it with the umbrella. No. But that's that's a quibble. I actually like that. I know what you mean. But here's the thing. You're saying that because you know now the scene exists. I think to truly think about how you feel about that scene, you have to take yourself back to being in a movie theater when you would see this for the first time. Right. If you saw it for the first time, you might be a little confused. Is it frozen? Is there a layer of ice that he's walking on? And the reason they do that almost slapstick umbrella dipping thing is to show you that he's walking on water and he's, as somebody says in the documentary, he's too dumb to know he can't. He's not supposed to be able to do it. Now that we know that's the ending scene, you might feel, as I briefly did, we don't need the underscoring of the umbrella because we know now he's meant to be walking on water. But I don't think you knew that then when you saw the movie the first time. And I, I think that's know. why they do Certainly it. by the time I saw it. I'm just saying it could play as like you're supposed to think it's real. Like he's, he's walking on a frozen pond or something. It could be confusing for totally. the viewer. Potentially. There are two things that I don't necessarily like. Putting the yep. umbrella in I don't like because... 
Peter Sellers has been this character. And that does seem like stepping out in a slapstick way. I agree. In the last moment, I suppose you can forgive it. Yeah. But my real problem with the ending, I actually dislike the ending with Shirley MacLaine. Yes. This yeah. one, I'm just sort of, because even though it's a fairy tale, it is a satire. There is commentary about the world, about America, about sure. television taking over. Yeah. He is not a holy fool who, because of his simplicity and kind heart, changes. It's because he's raised on television and sort of stunted. It's, it's stranger mm-hmm. than that. It does push it a little bit more towards divinity as if he is a model we should all be following. I, and I, well, Because of the association with Jesus, like, you know, that you're like walking on water. That even if it's just like, hey, this guy is- He's uh, magical. He's magical. I get it. I, I feel that it's such a unique movie yeah. that I can understand the moment where Hal Ashby figured out with the Shirley MacLaine scene. Uh, this is not the way the movie should end. Because mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. That that would have been a very disappointing way to end a movie like this. It but cheapens it, Eve a little it bit. It cheapens Eve and it cheapens Chauncey too. It makes it a very conventional yeah. love story where all of a sudden they have this moment where he actually is suddenly present and available and emotionally in love with her in a yeah. way that we know he can't be. Given that though, you don't have a lot of other options. I guess I never took it as literally as, I never took the lack of literalness as literally as you're taking it. How's that for a circumvent? I got to write you this down. You saw the ending and ascribed the holiness, the law, we should be more like himness to it. I equate it more to Brazil, for example. It's another movie that famously had a couple different endings. Ah. So that one, a studio imposed one, a given one, or Henry Fool, which has a great ambiguous ending. To me, this is exactly the right ending because it leaves you with the perfect amount of whimsy, uncertainty and room to think for yourself. Yeah. You make a good case. How else would you end this damn movie? I mean, okay, I'll put it this way, the way we say in the office all the time. Okay, you don't like this. Give me the better version. Tell me how to make it better. You got it. Okay. Thank you. And Tell me. The ghost of Hal Ashby, I hope you're listening to this as an editor. And Peter Sellers' mom. Actually, I think- You have this figured out. Yes. Okay. I'm, I mean, I'm listening. just as of 30 seconds ago the or so- The mausoleum door creeps open. Ben yeah. is reborn. <laughs> but with, wait for Bionic it, hands? chainsaw hands. <laughs> Let's say if we were to take the uh, Bob Jones ending. Yes. Chauncey comes out. He yep. finds the tree that has the been green shoots, yep. pushed down and he tends to it. He tends and to maybe it. if he were- Is this going to be a serious idea or is this- it's a, No, it's a serious idea. Okay. If right. he's tending to it and sort of, let's say he puts the umbrella yeah. down, you see Eve coming, yep. looking for him. But instead of her running over to him and saying like, Chauncey, I've been looking over, she stops mm. and watches mm. as he finishes that. He's sort of looking down at the umbrella, looking at this thing that is going to grow because- yeah. Of his intervention, and she is watching this moment that he doesn't realize he is being watched and seen and see, seen. End it right there and end it right there. Yeah. So you don't know if she's going to go to him or stay apart. Does she That's realize good. that there's something wrong with him? Does she maybe? Hey, here's a nurturing That's guy. That's a good ending. I think that would have been. That's a good ending. However, the only problem I would have with that ending, you have to change the whole marketing campaign. No. It does bring up a good question. The image is so damn good. You almost have to put it in just to have it on the poster. Look, I mean, if I mean, he come had on, Chris, floated above the for water. For your idea, idea. What, what's the poster? A guy tending to a tree with a woman looking up? and It's like that's like something out of Bergman. With playing, chainsaw like, hands. Playing, playing chess with the devil. No, I like that type of ending. I just think the hyper reality of the ending we have is appropriate. I guess if there's a term, there must be a German term for an image that embodies an incredibly layered and deep, complicated feeling that doesn't have to be explained. It's not even so much the walking and the umbrella. 
It's that first moment when he steps out. How about this as a compromise? The scene starts where he's at the pond's edge. He's tending to the tree. He steps up and he starts to walk out into the water. And there's a moment just before he dips the umbrella where he becomes aware that he's walking on the water, but he's still close enough to shore where you and I aren't quite sure what's going on yet. What if we just cut before that umbrella scene? So he steps out, he becomes aware, or does he, that he's walking on water, or is he? He doesn't do the umbrella. It goes to black right then. I would have loved that. That would have been kind of a, that would have been something that people would be like, wait, I would, you know, people would say he's not walking on water. He just took a few steps out into the pond. You were saying people say he's too stupid to know that he can't do this. Yeah. Another interpretation that I had read is that it's an allusion to Wiley Coyote. You know, literally running off the cliff and keep going. Uh, and it's only when he looks down that he falls. <laughs> and well, that I would only work that. if he fell into the water. Oh, well, so you're saying he could walk out and then become aware that he's walking on water. And then immediately as he became aware, fall into the water. Maybe cut just before he does. But, you know, I do love ending on the tensest moment and yes. then being like, does he fall through the water? Yeah. Does he keep walking? I think I would like that better. It's definitely a choice, but I can imagine being in the edit room and seeing, I, I guarantee you, it's the shot, the widescreen shot, and you got a guy walking down the middle of a lake on the water. It just looks too good it not to yeah. use. You're, you're right. <laughs> These guys are visual artists. And when going, it, just, I when it comes down to it, I can't. I can't that is that. an argument that I cannot. You know? Like I you and I would be in there going like, no, 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 let's cut here. But I like yours too. But I like a little more of the magical realism of walking on, onto the water, but just not being sure what's going on. Yeah. I and like you said, it does tie in with that, that poster and just, which is such a great image. It's a great image. And actually, you know, not to drop the name Magritte. Well, if someone's going to do our podcast, it's going to be you. Because actually when he is, just as he's leaving in the house, and I wonder how conscious, because that poster is so evocative, I think, of a Magritte. So too, when he's leaving the house, he goes through the foyer door, closes it behind him, and you see him Uh, through the frosted Mm. glass, his head and the hat framed in a part where it's Mm. frosted a little bit differently because he loses all detail of his face. It looks very reminiscent of like that Magritte with the apple. I was thinking- Just saying. Just drop Magritte. I thought the presence was more of the McGruff the crime fighting dog <laughs> was more of the that was more my level of reference or is it deputy dog who's the blue dog is that deputy dog do we see a cartoon of a yeah. crime fighting dog yeah it's the blue crime fighting dog huckleberry hound mm. uh i think i thought it was deputy dog being there cartoon reference deputy dog with a w being there mm, this is deputy dog no it's not deputy dog yeah. No, it's that blue. What's the one you're talking about? Well, Huckleberry Hound is blue. I think it's Huckleberry Hound. Is this it? But is I that mean, the one we see in Being There? The, I can't remember seeing it's it. It's going to drive me crazy now. Oh, yeah, that that dog. When It's not a crime-fighting thing. It's a, it's. Um, I thought it was going to be uh, Muttley. Oh, Muttley. From, um, Muttley. That's what it is, right? But it's not Wacky Races. <laughs> I don't think you hear that sound. Well, we certainly aren't going to hear it in the finished cut. Yeah, <laughs> we can't, can't afford it. It's definitely of that Hanna-Barbera ilk. Yeah. But it's not that dog. I think it's, it's not it might that be dog. a dog in a trench coat. That's why I thought it was... Uh, this is the part where people who know the answer to this are listening to this and they're like yelling on a train. Like, it's such and such, you idiots. Mumbly? Mumbly cartoon dog with a trench coat. No, I mean, is it Mumbly? Yes, it's Mumbly. Mumbly cartoon. Mumbly, that's it. Ugh. I love the Laugh Olympics. I could go down the Laugh Olympics wormhole. I don't remember it as Scooby's Laugh Olympics. Let's see. I mean, we got Wikipedia. Oh, that's what I looked at. Scooby's Laugh Olympics, where the various Hanna-Barbera characters compete in their own version of the Olympic Games. I mean, you know, you can't say Olympic Games, by the way. I don't know how Hanna-Barbera got away with it. In fact, 
Matt's going to probably have well, to bleep out laugh- when I say blank games. Well, anyway. The block. All right. Oh, Scooby's All-Star Laugh Olympics yeah. is a two-hour Saturday morning program block that included Scooby-Doo, Laugh Olympics, Blue Falcon and Dynamut, Captain Caveman, and reruns of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? By the so way- Laugh Olympics was its own show within Scooby's Laugh Olympics, which is the block, like TGIF. The two-hour cartoon block, whoever was coming up with that idea was a parent that had children. <laughs> they were like, we're going to do a two-hour window where my child will be fixated in front of the television and I can sit down and read the newspaper. So, uh, well, I think we've reached rock bottom, culturally. And I'd like to think we reached an apex of understanding about a complicated film, a brilliant director, a wonderful actor, an incredible cast, talented cinematographer. I would hope that when I'm Caleb Deschanel's age... I can wear a shirt and blue blazer as well as he does in his beautiful pre-war New York City apartment building, having worked on a hundred of the most iconic films ever made and wear it with such casual, how do you say this word? Insouciance? Is it insouciance? Insouciance? I would say insouciance. Well, but what would you say? Insouciance. Like in a French accent? Are you a waiter? Ah, Elon. Is that a better way to say insouciance? Is Elon and insouciance the same thing, really? Actually, Elon is a sense of style that doesn't have to announce itself. Insouciance is a devil may care. Casual lack of concern. A lack of concern about style. But Elon is style. Yeah. Well, you're talking about he wore his blue blazer and patterned shirt and glasses. He wore it with Elon, not with insouciance. Hal Ashby wore a ski parka beard and glasses with insouciance. With insouci- yeah, yeah, and okay. treated his wives with insouciance. Bullet, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, what a show, huh? Uh, While we did record this before instituting the alternative casting segment, we did mention that Burt Lancaster was considered for the role of cuddly industrialist Benjamin Rand, a role which ultimately went to the great Melvin Douglas. But I thought you might also be interested to hear that Laurence Olivier was actually offered that same role, but turned it down due to the film's sexual content, specifically the masturbation scene. I also read that one of the producers wanted Elvis Presley for the role of Chauncey, but couldn't get him due to his manager. Would Elvis Presley, star of Blue Hawaii, Viva Las Vegas, Girl Happy, and Clam Bake, have brought the same depth, comedic experience, and nuance to this singular role? The world will never know. No rants or raves this week. I'll save them for when Jason is back from his classified espionage mission in St. Petersburg. Let's keep that between us. So that brings us to the end. Thank you for listening. And until next time, if your blunders and shortcomings and ignorance don't lead you to Chauncey Gardner levels of transcendence, well, I hope they don't lead you to this fate either.
thank you for listening to this episode of Full Cast and Crew. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, drop us a line. You can email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at at fullcastandcrew or on Instagram at fullcastandcrew or, of course, find the podcast on Facebook. And if you really, really enjoyed it, take a screenshot of your favorite episode on your podcast player and forward it to a friend so they can subscribe and figure out what you're always laughing about. And if you didn't enjoy it, I don't know, drop us a line anyway. I can take it.